Hey, it's Jackie. And today I want to talk about some of the teachings that we have in the church that keep women in abusive relationships. You know, I've pastored women for over 30 years, and over those years, many women have come to me and shared their stories of abuse they've experienced at the hands of their partner or a leader in their church. And I knew at that moment that what I said about what God's word said about their abuse carried great weight. I felt the weightiness of the conversation. I knew that what I said, God says, uh, could determine whether they stayed or didn't stay in an abusive situation. I'll never forget the very first time I saw this kind of face-to-face. -face. I was in Dr. Hedden Robinson's preaching doctorate. Um, and again, I was there with 26 senior pastors and me. And one of the professors made this statement that there was absolutely no biblical reason whatsoever for a divorce. And then he gave the caveat, not even if a man was beating his wife. And at the time, I was sitting in the front row of class, and I was the only woman in the class, and my face turned bright red. Everything in me wanted to jump up and down and say, are you, are you kidding me? But I knew that if I did that, I'd be seen as the feminist in the room, you know? So I sat still. Yeah, I know that's shocking for some of you, but I sat still and didn't say anything. Thankfully, I didn't have to because this man sitting behind me jumped up and started to protest. That night I went home, I could not sleep. It, it was not theoretical for me. This wasn't, what did I think about theology? Women come to me asking me, do I have the biblical grounds to leave my husband who's beating me or raping me or beating my children. These are life altering questions and I needed to know the answers. What I have learned over these past couple decades is that we the church need to do some serious work about violence against women. And, and it's become a topic since church to, the Church 2 movement. I will say that we're at least having the conversation since about 2017. More and more pastors are having to think about how they're going to respond to reports of abuse, right? Um, but, but we need to be asking the question, how are our teachings actually aiding abuse in the home? Our teachings on headship and submission and how we think women should be silent or the idea of a woman's role solely as mother or wife, or even how we talk about 1 Corinthians 7, you know, that the woman is to give her husband sex anytime he wants it. These are not helpful teachings. In fact, they're harmful. We're starting to have theologians like Guile write books uh, like called The Headship of Men and the Abuse of Women, where he argues that there's a correlation between complementarian teaching and abuse in the home. And I heard that exact same statement made when I attended the UN Commission on the Status of Women. There is a connection between patriarchy and the violence against women. The higher the patriarchy, the higher the violence. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this, but I'm not an expert in the field of domestic violence. So I decided to ask someone who was to join us. So Leslie Vernick is joining us today to have a conversation. And Leslie is a licensed clinical social worker, a relationship coach, and has numerous books, including The Emotionally Destructive Relationship and The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. You're gonna really wanna hear what Leslie has to say. I hope you find it very helpful. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view.
So welcome, Leslie. I am so glad you are on this show. And uh, as I've said, I'm not the expert here. I've, I've had a lot of experience as a pastor with women, but I know that this is your expertise. Um, I previously had shared with the audience that um, I think there's some teachings that we have in the church that um, create seedbeds, if you will, for domestic violence against women. Uh, and we are going to talk about mostly violence against women, acknowledging, by the way, that men are also abused. But I think you have some statistics on that. Do you, would you share them with us? You shared them before with me privately. I'd love to hear them. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing when we think about domestic violence of women to men and men to women is domestic violence really is about control over, power mm. over. And so obviously a woman isn't as powerful as a man financially, physically, and in the Christian realm spiritually because she's the one who's supposed to be more submissive. So she may lash out at a man and do something you know, harmful to him, including shooting him, so that would be considered domestic abuse. But when we really look at the dynamics of the abusive relationship itself, the power over dynamic is really male to female, much more than female to male. But these are some statistics that I got when I was preparing for a counselor's summit. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injuries to women, outnumbering men by nine to one. About half of all female murder victims are killed by their husband, their boyfriend, or past boyfriend. In contrast, only about 3% of murdered men are killed by an intimate partner or former partner. Partner abuse accounts for, this was so staggering to me, partner abuse accounts for 25% of suicides by US women and 50% of suicides by African-American women. And that broke my heart. And I shared with you, Jacqueline, that um, when I was counseling women, they would often feel like suicide was a more honorable way of getting out of an abusive marriage than divorce. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the crazy thinking that Christian women have sometimes in this terrible, dilemma that they find themselves in. Is it better to honor God and just die than yeah. to actually expose what's going on at home? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of those teachings because a lot of women and men sit underneath these teachings and don't even realize what these kinds of teachings are doing to set them up for um, allowing abuse in their homes and even in the churches, which we'll get to. But so can you think of, give us, give us an example of what you have heard of, of, of scripture being used in a way that, that is maybe a seedbed for that, for abuse? Well, so obviously the headship and submission piece is a big one. And so when we look at that, someone who wants power over someone loves saying, I'm the boss, I'm the head, this is my house, I'm the God-given leader, which is really mimicking more of a patriarchal mindset culture versus a biblical mindset culture. The Bible was written in a patriarchal culture. It was also written in a slave culture. It doesn't mean that God endorses patriarchy any more than he endorses slavery, but it was written in those cultures. And so when we look at a lot of the biblical mandates around headship and submission and even husbands and wives, the Bible actually seeks to correct that power imbalance, for example. In 1 Corinthians 7, which is a verse that's been weaponized against women that they have no choice about their sex life or their body, your body is not your own, it's your husband, so you just have to have sex whenever he wants. Um, the most powerful word in that whole passage, when you look at the context, it was written to believers, new believers, who were thinking that maybe abstinence was a better route for Christians. And so Paul's saying, no, if you're married, you know, enjoy your sex life. And he's saying, you know, your body's not your own, you, you know, let your husband or wife use it. But the most powerful word in that passage is likewise. Every woman knew her duty as a wife in biblical times, that she, of course, she had to have sex with her husband. The most interesting part of it was that Paul mutualized it and said, hey, husbands, your body isn't yours either. Likewise, your wife has ownership over your body. So it's not just this power over dominion model that is typically misunderstood in the headship and submission teaching. And I think the other piece that I just want to emphasize to your listeners is when Jesus taught about headship and submission to his disciples, and he talk, talked about authority and power, he said, hey guys, of all the examples I could use to teach you power and how to not misuse your power, I'm going to show you what that looks like. And he washed their feet. Right. He washed their feet. And right after that example, he said, this is what headship doesn't look like. He said, you know, the Gentiles, they rule over others and misuse their authority over others. Not so with you. Now, Jesus could have used 
his example of taking the money changers out of the temple to talk about power. He could have said, hey, this is how you do it, guys. If you're going to be in power and you're going to be the leaders of the church, make sure you turn over the tables of everybody who does it wrong. But he used this very humble task of servanthood to talk about what headship and leadership looks like. And so when we see husbands who are demanding their own way and they're saying, I get the final say. When I was in premarital counseling in my marriage, that was my pastor's first thing. You know, your husband you know, gets to make the final decision and everything. And I'm like, you mean when I get married, I have to lose my brain and become a child? Is that what you're asking me? Like I have no voice or no choice? And so this is kind of the misunderstanding of headship, which really isn't headship biblically at all. It's selfishness and entitlement. And the Bible has those words, but it's not headship. Headship means you serve first, at least my definition as Jesus taught it. Yeah, and I love that passage, too, where Jesus washes the feet because he actually even takes on the posture of a slave. Mm -hmm. And in that culture, status was everything, right? So to the disciples, to see Jesus take on the lowest status in society, like that's not what that society did. You always fight for a higher status position, right? And Jesus takes the very lowest and he's saying to his disciples, this is what leadership looks like. You go low. You're not going to strive for the top, right? It's a fascinating, and, and, and they must have been like, this sounds horrible. <laughs> They didn't, they didn't understand it at all. They no. didn't understand it at all. That's why Peter said, hey, when I get to heaven, can I sit on your right hand? Or, you know, John, was. they were vying for power over there because they didn't understand that servanthood and headship are the same thing. That when you're the head, you get to model servanthood first. And I love and your, we don't teach that in our churches at all. No, we do not. And your First Corinthians 7, I've heard that misused over and over and over again for women, right? You have to put out for your husband. That's been used over. And you are absolutely correct that the emphasis is about the man in that society did not have to give his body to his wife. He did not. I mean, he had, she had no authority over him. Right. He had total authority over her. So this mutuality that's happening, it's it, the person's ears that would have been most shocked would have been the men who were listening. The men, yeah. Mm -hmm. they, had, they, they actually lost power and status in that conversation that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, which is fascinating. And, yeah, and it's really interesting, Jackie, that, you know, when, when the Bible talks about power, we all have some level of power. We have power yeah. over our children as moms. Um, husbands have, you know, physical power over their wives if they want to use it. We have, you know, political power. We have religious power. We have financial power. But when we look at how power is to be used in the Bible, it's always to be used under to lift up or with to support. It's never to be used over. And when power is used over people, the Bible has a word for that. It's called oppression. And mm. God hates oppression. If you look at the Psalms, he's, he's always on the side of the oppressed. And so when we think about a biblical marriage, why would we set it up to be power over? Which is the way we've set it up when we look at the headship model that's been traditionally taught in the conservative evangelical church. Yeah, dangerous. It's dangerous for women. Yeah. It, 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 enables, it enables him to control and have power over her. Let's talk about that dynamic. You mentioned power and control. I was recently with a young woman who shared how when she got married, the teaching in her church was uh, you get married and when you buy a house, the house is underneath your husband's name. When you get a car, the, the, the car title is underneath your husband's name. And then she started working for a, a domestic violence shelter. And she noticed, you know, they would talk to the women about how there's this power and control is what will send someone back to their husband many times or their partner many times. And she noticed that the only difference in her marriage and these women's marriages or relationships was that her husband wasn't beating her because she said, you know what, if he chose to beat me, I'd have no power or control because I don't have my name on anything. I have no money in my account, like no, no resources. So she said, the only difference is he's chosen not to beat me. Otherwise I'd be in that exact situation. So I, I said to her later, well, did you go back and put your name on the mortgage? She goes, oh, you bet I did. <laughs> But she was actually taught that you don't put your name on the mortgage because he's the provider. And what are you saying? You can't trust him? Well, you know, I think that's really powerful that it showed that he wasn't an abuser because she did put her name once she understood her disadvantage and explained that to her husband. Because I think a lot of men might be 
pretty decent men. They've just grown under the same teaching. Like right. this is what headship looks like. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what a biblical marriage looks like, which is absolutely false. I think of the Proverbs 31 woman, which we all look at and he says about her, he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. And that's the picture of a good marriage, that you don't feel unsafe and that you trust this person. Not financially unsafe, not physically unsafe, not emotionally unsafe, not spiritually unsafe. But this woman, I mean, we often kind of pant and say, oh, I could never be like her. I could never do all she does. But I don't think we're trying to look at her tasks as much as her virtues. And she was a very resourceful, independent. She made her own money. She did her own thing. She took care of her family. But she also took care of other things in her life that were important to her. And I think this is a second teaching that I think is really done women a disservice in the church, and that's this. If a little boy was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, all I want to be is a daddy. They would say, okay, but what else? What else do you want to be? Like, what is, you know, what's in your heart to do? For a woman, if she were to say, all I want to be is a mommy and a wife, they would be, good girl, good girl. And so what has happened to women is they have lost themselves in favor of a role. They're a wife and a mom, and some of them may be very good wives and moms, but God has created you to be a person, not just a role. And so when we've flattened ourselves out to just a service provider, you know, we do the mm. roles of cooking, cleaning, babysitting, nursemaiding, caretaking, and sexual provider, that's all we are. God has made us into so much more. He's, I've got these flowers behind me, and they're all different. And God has made us each to blossom or bloom into our own personhood. And we're not all the same. And when we're told that that's not knowing our place or we're trying to be too big for our britches, I mean, is a sunflower trying to be too big for its britches or is it supposed to be a sunflower and a beautiful big sunflower? It's not supposed to be a tiny little, you know, a tiny little speck of a flower. And so I think for women who have tried to nurture their talents, their gifts, their abilities, their leadership, in the evangelical church has been seen as you don't know your place. Right. right. And that has hurt them. And so that they've felt like, oh, I have to be, I have to, I have to die to myself, which is the whole metaphor of spirituality. And it's a wonderful metaphor. So when a seed dies to itself as a seed, it doesn't become a nothing. It becomes right. transformed into what it was designed to become. So it grows into the sunflower, it grows into the oak tree, it grows into the apple tree or whatever it was supposed to be by God. But when a woman dies to herself in her marriage, she believes that there's nothing left to her, that she's just a functional role. And I don't think that's spiritually wise. And I think it really causes a lot of depression in women because it's like they're flattened out. They have no self. And, and as a pastor, I've seen that. I've dealt with a lot of women who have come to me in their 40s and 50s and kind of, if you will, awakened to the idea that their life wasn't just about a role. Um, and there's a lot of grief over mm -hmm. lost time. Yeah. You know, they've, they've bought a lie and they've woken up and went, wow, I lost 20 or 30 years of when mm -hmm. I could have been investing and growing and developing um, in, in, in a very a variety of ways. And so I've always find that there's a lot of lament and grief involved in this if or when a woman realizes, whoa, I, that isn't what Jesus was actually asking of me. No, um, and when we think about the women in the Bible, they were, they were strong warrior women. I think of Deborah and <laughs> Esther and, and even Vashti and Ruth and, you know, women who, who forged out, made their own choices, made good decisions, had purpose and value in God's kingdom and God's story, more than just a wife. So let me ask you this. I think there's a... a a misunderstanding um, that there's a particular type of woman, Christian woman, that falls into, if you will, abuse, partner abuse. Um, you know, we have, we think she comes from a certain socioeconomic background. She, we think she comes from a lack of education. Like, talk to us mm -hmm. a little bit about that. What, what is, is there a, a, a typical woman that ends up being abused? <laughs> and and what's going on in her that that when she's in this situation? And I want to speak specifically to Christian women in a Christian environment. What what's happening to her internally as she's dealing with this? 
So I could get into this in a, in a really deep way, but I think if we go back to what women have been good Christian women, it's their virtues. It's their virtues that get them caught. So, so if you have the virtue that I'm to be forbearing, which is a great biblical virtue, yep. but I don't have any boundaries of when enough is enough. I just have, I'm forgiving and forgetting and forgiving and forgetting and forbearing and long-suffering and loyal and sacrificial. These are wonderful biblical virtues, so I don't want to demean them. But, and I don't know if it's okay to talk about this, I hope it is, but there's no masculine to them. It's all feminine virtues and they're good virtues. But if we were to think about the image of God, so the image of God is male and female. Men have a hard time with that, but the image of God is both and. He created yes. women and men in his image. And so the yes. image of God, Jesus exhibited masculine and feminine qualities. Yes, and did. we would never describe a spiritually mature man with all masculine qualities because that would, then he would be a bully. So we would have to say as a spiritually mature man, he would have some humility. He would have some gentleness. He would have some loving kindness. Those are feminine qualities, but a mature man would have those qualities, right? But when we describe a mature spiritual woman, she has no masculine. She mm. has no masculine. She's just loving, gentle, humble, submissive, which are wonderful things, but right. she also needs some courage and some bravery and some leadership and all the masculine qualities that we give to men who are spiritually mature, but not to women. She doesn't know her place if she has those qualities. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for women as they develop to understand that sometimes the best part of them, their, their kindness, their, their desire to please, their servanthood, all of the best parts of them are easy targets for people who are very selfish. And so part of our educating women is to help them be discerning and also to learn that sometimes our greatest strengths can have weaknesses to them. So when we have no boundaries and we have no, um, we're just generous to a fault, then we can be taken advantage of. If I just gave my ATM card to anybody and said, help yourself, then I would be a wreck financially because they would help themselves right. <laughs> and right. I wouldn't have enough to pay my own bills, right? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I've often thought there's a balance to these words, forbearing, et cetera, et cetera, right? In Colossians, it says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And I find it very interesting. Um, we need to ask, well, Paul, what is fitting to the Lord? And if you, and Paul actually told us if you, so I think that's in Colossians like 315. Well, in like one through 14, he tells us what is fitting and what isn't fitting. And in those verses, one of the things he talks about is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, which if we're Christians and we're married or have a partner that is a Christian, then uh, we're brothers and sisters also, so this applies, that we're to admonish one another. It's actually a loving thing to do to actually use your voice and say, that's not okay. Yes. What you're doing is sinning against me, against my children, you know, like, we're actually allowed to admonish our, our partners, which means to call them out on the carpet. <laughs> well, I think that's actually the role of a helpmate, that, that no one knows you better than your helpmate, right? So if you're truly a helpmate, and this is, again, the wrong teaching, we've, we've redefined that as an enabler. Quiet. So you're to be, you're to be long-suffering and just enable him to continue to abuse you? How is that good for you? But it's also okay. not good for him. And right. it's not good for your children. It's a lose-lose. It's not good for your marriage. And so to be able to be a helpmate to someone says, hey, you know, I use this analogy with our women. I said, you know, if your husband had a zipper down, you'd probably tell him, not because you want to humiliate him, but because you have his best interests in mind. Pull up your right. zipper. You're going to embarrass yourself. Right. Or if he had a black mole on the back of his neck, you would say, you have a black mole. You need to go to the doctor. And when they're acting in a ungodly, abusive way toward you, toward your kids, abusing themselves and with alcohol or other addictions, if we just stay silent and compliant, that is absolutely the worst thing that we could do. And we're not loving well. Love speaks the truth. So it's that's not just forbearing. It speaks the truth. Yeah, and I think that's the key. It's unloving. It's actually unloving, unloving. to not admonish that, right? It's because you're saying you are being destructive, not only to me, but to people that you love and yourself Yeah, and yourself. And I'm willing to just sit by and let that happen. You know, that, yeah. that's a very unloving thing to let someone wreck themselves and everybody else they're touching. 
Yeah, when we've when we've helped women to really stand up for this, their churches have disciplined them. So I had a woman who, whose husband was on a rage rampage, and he was he broke down the bedroom door to get to the kids. So she was so scared, she called the police. And of course, he didn't get disciplined because it was his house and he's the husband. But she got disciplined and excommunicated from taking communion because she called the secular authorities. So she was trying to be his helpmate and saying, "Hey, this isn't okay. This is so destructive. It's even illegal what you're doing." And her church just couldn't get behind her. And so this is part of what we come against in the church is that they don't understand these dynamics and they sort of again enable the the one who's abusing their power their physical power their financial power their spiritual power they're enabling that person who's abusing that power to oppress and harm those under their care and that's wrong so that's an interesting question because i think this has popped up this idea um, since the church two movement we've seen the the lack of protection by mm-hmm. church leadership um, to the victim or even holding the abuser accountable, whether that that victim is coming forth to her pastor about domestic violence within her home, or whether it's the person coming forth because they've been abused within the church. Um, and so what do you think is going on there? I'd love to hear your insights on that. And, and it's a wrecking ball for the church that, that we yeah, see this happening. So I just I just did a, um, a paper on this, and, and I th- or a talk on this, and I think that churches, if they really want to do different, they're gonna have to really think what their values are. Because I think that they have valued the safety of the institution, the financial safety, especially for the institution. Hey, we don't wanna get sued, we can't admit this, we don't wanna have a bad reputation, we we don't wanna harm our pastor's reputation by making this public, so we have to protect the institution a person's disposable. We can, you know, we can shut you up, we can get rid of you, but the institution is the one that's glorifying God. I mean, think of the the whole sick mess around Rabbi Zacharias's, you know, institution. They were so set on protecting his reputation and his institution and his uh, financial empire that they were willing to sacrifice the little ones who were bleeding like bleeding sheep. And I think this is really true in marriage as well. We have elevated the sanctity of marriage to a place that it, it is, isn't true in the scriptures. We've elevated to an unrealistic place, sort of like the, the Old Testament elevated the Sabbath to this legalistic place of, of rules. And Jesus was breaking the rules right and left. You know, he was saying the Sabbath wasn't created. You know, we, it was created for man for rest and restoration. Marriage was created for people, for safety and community to raise children. And when it vies from, the, or when it, uh, goes away from that when it violates that. We're protecting this institution. And so when I've challenged pastors, they're so bent on saving the marriage that at they all at all costs. At all costs that they will compromise the sanity and the safety of the people in the marriage. Just so that and so what they're really asking a woman to do is lie and pretend. So lie and pretend everything is fine because we don't want to hear about it. And be harmed. Let and be harmed. Yeah. yeah. And her yeah. children harmed. And Studies have shown that the effects of growing up in an unsafe environment are, you know, lifelong. The anxiety, the dysregulation of your body. I mean, these things, we think, oh, children are always better, you know, at home. But not always because not of always. The, the effects that the abuse, the children's pick up on the patterns of the parents and the habits of the patterns. The thinking of the pa- uh, parents, the habits of the parents, and the sins of the parents are passed on to the next generation unless one of the parents makes a change. I tell women, your children need one healthy parent. One healthy parent. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. So tell me, like, what would you, like, surely you're advising churches on how to, how to do this better. What, <laughs> what suggestions are you making to help the leadership provide a safer space for women, even men and children to come forward and report abuse, whether it be in their home or in the church. Yeah, I just did a video teaching. Uh, it's through the American Association of Christian Counselors called Abuse 2.0 for Church Leaders. If they, It's a you know, three-hour video teaching on this. But I think that, honestly, they really don't care about doing better because they're so afraid of the fallout, if they really acknowledge this. Um, one in four Christian women report being in an abusive or destructive marriage. 
So now what, what are they going to do? They don't have the staff to counsel all these women. They don't have the staff to counsel all these couples. They don't have the resources. Are they all going to file for divorce? Then what happens to the church? And so they're so afraid of standing up for what's right and the truth because of the potential fallout that they'd rather just close their eyes and continue the lie that it's not that bad. It's not happening here. Um, you know, this isn't what our ministry should be. It's about evangelism, all kinds of rationalization. And that's why it goes back to our values, like what's most important. And I think of the quote from Martin Luther King that has just really haunted me. He said, what hurt the most was not the words of our enemies. It was the silence of our friends. Yeah. And I think this is where the church is really going to fall down before the Lord, because we have been complicit in this by being silent, by trying to be neutral. There is no neutral when it comes to abuse and oppression. So how would you advise a woman? I, I, a woman comes to you um, and says, my husband is beating me or however you want to, raping me, because that's a part of abuse in a marriage. Um, should she go to the church? Should that be where she goes first? Um, is that the best place for her to figure out how to navigate this situation? Because, you know, it's very hard. You know this as well as I do. It's very hard for a woman to even tell. It's even harder for her to do something about it. So, you know, we, we talk about, and we have churches that really encourage people to come forth to their pastors and, and, and bring forth these things. Is that the safest place? My experience is no. Um, I wish it were. I, I would love to be out of business. If I were, you know, if the churches were doing their job, I wouldn't have to do what I do. But um, my experience is no, it's not the safest place. There are some good churches, some churches that are really trying to do better. So I, I don't want to minimize that. But typically, um, typically people do go to the church first. Um, because, and they probably aren't going to disclose the whole shebang. They're going to disclose just a little bit to see what kind of reception they get. Mm -hmm. um, but typically the answer has been for women who disclose this. Either you're gossiping about your husband, bring him so I can hear his side of the story, because there's always two sides of every story. In other words, if he hits you, it must be some reason that you're doing. And this is the crazy part of it. Is there any justification for hitting someone when you're mad. I, I'm not a perfect wife. I'm sure you're not either. We have done things that are, our kids do things. Is it, is it their fault that we beat them? No. And so where is self-control coming in here? Where, you know, I'm upset with you. You've disappointed me. You won't have sex when I want, or you crash the car into the garage or whatever you did. It's still not okay for me to treat you that way. So we, we've misunderstood counseling when we think, well, if she did this better, he wouldn't act that way. If she had sex more, he wouldn't watch porn. If she didn't provoke him or talk back, he wouldn't have slapped her. You know, so now it becomes her responsibility to be the perfect wife so he never gets mad, right? How, how possible is that? It's like a no-win situation. So pastors uh, tend to give poor counsel. They tend to not understand. Women tend not to tell the whole story because they're afraid that they won't be believed. And it's shameful. It's so shameful to Very actually shameful. say out loud that your husband treats you as if you're garbage. I mean, right. it feels like, oh, and to actually talk about sexual abuse to a pastor, my experience with the women that have done that um, is twofold. One is their pastor may be very sympathetic and understanding and say, wow, that's terrible. And then never bring it up again and never ask her how she's doing and never tell her what to do. So then it feels really creepy. She's going into church thinking that he knows what's going on in my marriage and I feel exposed, you know, or it's like, well, you know, first Corinthians seven says your body is not your own. And so have you been denying him? And maybe he really needs you to be more available. And then it becomes her responsibility again to manage his, right. his body of how he treats her. And she can't. That's not possible for her to be in control of him. Well, and I'm going to take that one step further, which probably won't surprise you, but might surprise some of um, the people listening. As a pastor, who women have shared that, that they have gone to their pastor and shared about sexual violence in their marriage. There are some pastors that actually then ask for more explicit details yes. and get really... Uh, I would say almost asking for soft porn to be described to them. And so 
I want to say to women out there, if you ever go to a pastor and he can asks you for very specific graphic um, descriptions of what you're talking about, that's inappropriate. Yeah. He's yeah. crossed the line. It's crossed and I the line. I shouldn't even have to say it, but I'm going to tell you, mm -hmm. I've heard those stories and I bet you have yeah. too. I have too. And I, th I think there's this fine line because what we tell women is when you go to your pastor and you say, my husband's a covert narcissist. Most pastors have no idea what you're talking about. And so you do have to give some details, right? Or even if you say my husband's abusive, um, usually that will raise their back a little bit. Like I'm going to defend him. He's probably just a normal man like me. Um, so we do say, hey, you have to describe the behaviors. Um, when you say your husband's sexually abusive, he may want to know what, what that means. Like, what, what, what does that really look like? And you may say, I don't give my consent. You don't have to say all the details. And right. then if he pushes more for that, you know, my no is not honored. And if he starts using, well, you're not allowed to say no, again, I think this is the, this is the warning bells for you to say this probably, if you're not allowed to say no, then this isn't the place that you're going to get the right help. Because one of the, the most important things in treatment of someone who's been traumatized in an abusive relationship when they go to their church is safety and choice. And I don't know about you, Jackie, in your church when you worked in a church, but I think sometimes churches get so, um, they get controlling themselves. Like they want, to, they want to tell you what to do. Like you have to leave even. You have to leave. Well, it's not your decision to make. And so part of our role for someone who's been so injured in a relationship that's been oppressive is to help them make good choices and help them learn to make choices versus us deciding for them what they need to do. Yep. And so I think that's really important for us to just recognize that when you go to a place and someone's listening to you and they believe you and it's safe to disclose and they're helping you decide what you need to do, that's a good thing if they're telling you, well, you, God hates divorce, you have to stay married no matter what, you just have to figure this, if they're telling you you can't leave or you need to go to counseling or you need to do marriage counseling, that's the only solution we're going to offer, that's a controlling pastor, a controlling church, and you're jumping from one hot pot to another hot pot. Yeah, and so... <laughs> my mind is going round and round about just one of the things, and this is my bent, is that we need better theology, right? You're talking about better virtues, like, hey, she needs to be believed. She needs to be safe. When she goes forward to a pastor, he, and this is typical also, men tend to get bristled because if you're, if you're saying something about a man, it might also be true of them or of their him. characteristic, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so there's this, but we also have to have better theology. You can't say to a woman, you can't say no, the Bible says no. When you, we do this to women, what we do is abuse is very hard to walk out of, period. And then when you strap, thus says the Lord, around their neck, it chokes them, right? It's like so hard for a woman to walk out on an abusive marriage. Ask her then to do it uh, and defy her faith. It's a whole other ballgame. And so if we don't at some point restructure how we talk about um, uh, scripture and how scripture talks about relationships with men and women, we have, we're going to continue to put women in this environment. I had a friend one time uh, pose the idea that perhaps we need uh, malpractice insurance mm -hmm. for pastors and leaders mm -hmm. in the church. You know, we, we require that of doctors and lawyers when you're hurt or if you're in a legal thing, you go to these people for help. And it's and, and I'm hearing you say that most people, Christian women, first and foremost, go to their church for help. I'm also hearing you say we the church might be one of the most ill-equipped places to go. <laughs> and that is like even saying that is ridiculous. Right. Um so maybe if we actually legally required pastors to have malpractice insurance, they would get more equipped, be a little more careful how they advised? Maybe. I hope so. Maybe not. You know, we still have bad doctors and they have all of that. And we have bad counselors. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that this is so true anymore, but I was speaking at... Um, the big church associated with Liberty University, and I was um, talking to their director of their marriage and counseling department, their masters of marriage and counseling department for counselors. They didn't have one course on domestic violence. Really? So, yeah. 
Yeah, so so this was, I don't know if it's so true anymore, but this was a couple of years ago. And so if you can graduate as a marriage and family therapist and you still don't understand domestic violence and abuse of relationships and understand how to witness the dynamics of power and control in a setting, then you're not equipped to deal with that problem. And it's okay if you're not equipped as long as you know you're not equipped. Right. And if you see it, you refer it elsewhere. But when you think it's one thing, so I'll, gi I'll give you a really good example of this. So, so we had a couple who came in and he was very repentant because he was angry about something she did that was against his rules. She talked on the phone when, during dinner, which he didn't like. And so he took her phone and he threw it in a sink of soapy water, wrecked her phone. And so they were in counseling and he's very remorseful that he, he shouldn't have done that. He sh so so this, is the, this is the mistake counselors make. So he's remorseful, but they never looked at the pattern of control over. Like, what are these rules that she has to live by? What mm. Why can't she talk on the phone during dinner? If she makes a decision as an adult woman to talk to somebody on the phone during dinner because it was an emergency, why did that upset you? Why isn't she allowed to make that choice as your wife, right? That never got into it. It's like, you need to forgive him. So as soon as he acts repentant, the next counseling strategy is, well, now it's your job to forgive. Well, maybe it's her job to forgive at some point, but there, the problem, the root is still there, even though he's sorry for what he did or he's acting sorry for what he did. And so they just don't know what to look for, what really dynamics are there to say, because if they believe in headship and submission, then he's allowed to make these rules for her to live by. And if she didn't obey the rules, yeah, he's sorry he wrecked her phone, but she was wrong for not obeying the rules. And it still gets into that then. So let's tease out a little bit something you said, because I think this is another thing that trips us up, is this idea, easy forgiveness, I'll call it. Um, that is handed out quickly when someone comes forth, right? It's like, well, you have to forgive. What, how, how do you, and, and, and I love what you just said. Yes, we do at some point. How do you, how do you help women think that through? Because who that's a weapon. Yeah. Jackie, you're really breaking up a lot. You're buffering and stuff. I'm, I'm not sure if your internet is weird. I can answer the question, but I just want you to know that. Thank um, you. Yeah, so how do we answer the question of forgiveness? And I think the, the, the issue is it's hard to forgive if you're not allowed to name what it is. You know, so the forgiveness is a process. So if there's nothing big deal that happened, why would you need to forgive? And so I think the first piece is owning and naming. He hurt me. He did this to me. This damaged me or my stuff or whatever happened. And this really hurt. So the impact of what they did has to be allowed some space to talk about versus the first step is forgiveness. I talked to my pastors about this. I go to a large mega church as well and that was a question they had about forgiveness. And I said, well, pastor, if someone, if someone was in the parking lot on Sunday morning and they were texting and they accidentally crashed into your car and you, know, you didn't put your seatbelt on yet and you've got a gash in your head and your car's all rumpled up in the beginning, in the front, and your radiator's smoking. And they jump out of their car and say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad it's you, pastor, because you are the pastor and love covers a multitude of sins and I know you're gonna forgive me, so be well and I'll see you next week. And they hop back in their car and drive off. I mean, what does that feel like? It feels like they had no care for the impact they caused, even if it was an accident. And so I think there has to be a space for, for the victim of whatever happened, the injustice or the sin or however you want to call it, whether it was on purpose or accidentally, to process through the impact of how this has hurt me. And then am I willing and choosing to forgive for my benefit? But I think we've mistakenly equated forgiveness means reconciliation. And it may not mean reconciliation. And so mm -hmm. I think that has to be teased out. And I, I want to forgive because God calls me to. I don't want to be a, pa a prisoner of bitterness. But I don't think I'll ever trust you again. I don't think I'll ever want you to work for me again. I don't think I ever want to live with you again. I don't think I ever want to sleep with you again. Depending on the offense, I think it's okay for a woman to decide trust has been irreparably broken. And I think this is the mistake that Christian counselors often think is that if you forgive someone, then the next step is you have to trust them again. And if someone hasn't changed, why would you trust them? And sometimes the consequences of sin are permanent. Like if you drive drunk and you kill someone, 
You could be really repentant, but that person isn't coming back to life. Right. You've really impacted their life forever and they're not back. And so I think we've been naive in the Christian world that, oh, it doesn't matter what he does as long as she forgives him, that puts the marriage back together. It doesn't put the marriage back together. She may never, ever want to live with him again, ever, ever want to sleep with him again, never, ever want to kiss him again or be in the same room with him again. And that's her right to decide. Yeah. And I want to, and And it doesn't mean she's hard hearted. Yeah. I love that you said that. I, I want to share one story that I think even Jesus uh, doesn't expect us to forgive instantly. Um, my dad, I, I come from a domestic violent home, and my dad uh, has a, is, is a narcissist and just a real off-the-bizarre-wall person. And not that long ago, maybe eight years ago, I was home. And my dad said something to the effect of, you know, you weren't kind to me when I had an affair on your mom and you weren't nice to my girlfriend. He made me work with his girlfriend when I was a little girl at the, at the business. And so he's telling me I wasn't nice to him or his girlfriend who he was having an affair on my mom with. And I looked at him and I said, dad, I was 10. I was 10, you know, but I went home from that encounter with my dad. And I sat in my God chair, it's my rocking chair, and I was talking to Jesus. And I said, I know that I need to forgive my dad. I'm a pastor. I know what you say about forgiveness. And literally Jesus said to me, he said, we're going to get to that. But my sweet daughter, you have been wrecked. And for a while, I just want you to sit with me and let my love wash over you. Mm-hmm. And I went back to him multiple times, like, like for three months, four months. I was expecting myself to move through forgiveness faster than Jesus was. And what I realized experientially is Jesus wants us to go through the process of forgiveness, not cheap forgiveness, which is, oh, yes, I'll say it because I'm supposed to do it. That's not authentic. That doesn't solve what's happening interiorly. Jesus doesn't even ask us to do that. Mm -hmm. And we need to remember that when, when we get in some environments where we're told to forgive quickly as if the offense has not even happened. That's so good. And it's a beautiful story of the love of God for understanding the impact that sin has caused people. The impact of sin is, is harsh and deadly and demeaning and degrading many times. And it takes us time to heal and process through that. And again, forgiveness is good for us to do at some point. But for the counselor to push that as the next step um, often puts a burden on the victim and the perpetrator who's crashed the car or who's cheated on the wife or who's cheated on, you know, the child and broken up their family is sort of like gets off with like, everybody's fine with what I did because everybody has to forgive me and, you know, get over it and I can just move on with my life. He doesn't have to do the hard work. Well, and I think there's some value in seeing the pain you've caused. Yeah. Because at least for the people that I've worked with in counseling who truly are repentant, they will say, I don't want to ever forget the pain that I caused because I don't want to think sin doesn't have a price. It has a price. It's pleasurable for the moment, but it has a price. And I don't want to forget. And that's why this whole forgive and forget theology is nonsense. It's a good thing to remember that the snake bit you. So that you don't go close to the snake again, even if you forget the you forgive the snake, right? It's good to remember, and yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think this we're not capable of forgetting for good reasons. Okay, so one last thing. Uh, I again, there is no way we can. I, I'm chuckling because you've mentioned things like, "Well, I spent three hours with this class. I spent three. Okay, so we can't possibly cover right. all that needs to be covered. My hope here is that we're just tapping something so that when people listen, they glean something helpful, but also can like move toward resources like yours to be able to go further with some of these things. But before we leave, is there something else you want to say that we haven't covered in this conversation that you want our listeners to be sure to know? I think it's really important for them to know that abuse isn't just about physical violence. So abuse is about the control over, and it can be subtle or it can be strong, but it's about you losing your voice and your choice. And I think this is the myth of marriage that a submissive woman doesn't have a voice or a choice, and that's not true. 
submission is a choice. Submission is a choice, yes, right? And that's, and that's part of the biblical principle of submission that we need to bring back into it. If you are coerced and forced, that's not biblical submission. So if he doesn't hit you, is it still abuse? It can be. So look for the element of choice and voice. Do you have a choice and do you have a voice and are you controlled over uh, and, and not allowed to say no? What happens when, some, when you say no? That would be the first thing. And the second thing I would really want women to be sure to understand is God does not value the sanctity of marriage more than your safety and your children's mm. safety and sanity. And so the best thing that you can do is get healthy and strong for yourself and for your kids. And maybe as you get healthy and strong, that can influence or invite your husband to do some of that same work himself. And if not, then at least your children and you are healthy and strong. That's beautiful. Thank you. And you have a ton of resources out there. And I really, again, you are the expert in this area. I, as a pastor, I constantly push people in these environments toward people like you because you, this is your area of expertise. Where, where do they find you? Where do they find your resources? So I have a lot of resources on YouTube and Facebook in terms of videos, but they can go to our website, which is just my name, leslievernick.com. And there's a test, there's a quick start guide that they can take, because I think a lot of women think, oh, I'm just in a hard marriage. It's not a destructive marriage. It's not an abusive marriage. It's just a hard marriage. So we actually have a test that they can take. What's the difference between a hard marriage or a difficult marriage, a disappointing marriage, or a destructive marriage? And so you'll go through that test. You'll watch some videos about that. So it'll really clarify for you where you're at, because then you can make decisions based on good information, what the Bible has to say about abuse, and then you can go forward from there. So we have lots of information on the website about that, as well as just on the internet. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your mind. Love your mind. I'm so glad we had your mind also. Um, and for those of you listening, I hope this conversation helped you reframe some things about domestic violence and abuse. Maybe you've got some tools. Maybe you were affirmed or perhaps there was an open pathway for some healing. And if you're in an abusive situation or you might think you might be and you might be wondering in light of what Leslie just said, is this a hard marriage or a destructive marriage? I want to encourage you to reach out to someone, particularly someone like Leslie, right? Like we're talking about go to the people that actually have the resources to help you. And I also want to say Jesus sees you and wants more for you. And so yes. reach out. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.